millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Every We're, single time. We should come up with like some opening phrase instead of both of us like timidly <laughs> approaching a hello I don't disagree with you I just can't think of a better solution at the moment maybe it's our thing I think it might be it might officially okay I guess it's officially our thing now I think it's calming I think it, it eases you into it it does for me at sure. least Sure. okay I'll adopt your your mindset on that one <laughs> today is part two it's part two and before we continue I actually have a slight correction for what I said something I said last time Um, I very confidently misread my notes and said (laughs) that Peter the Great was Peter, Catherine's husband, great-grandfather. That's not true. It was his actual grandfather. And if I had read my notes correctly, I would have said that Elizabeth was his aunt, not his great-aunt. But I very confidently said his great-aunt because I can't read. However, for the rest of the episode, I, again, confidently referred to her as his aunt. So I like, you I like the ring. Of, it sounded nice. It's like the ring was nice. Thank you. you. Know? If you were confused and or looked it up and said, she's very wrong. I know. Um, I it, would <laughs> I would put money on people trusting you as opposed to looking it up, which is I would, genuinely I would put, terrifying. Hold hard cash down on that. Oh, no. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to to say that before we continued. I feel Um, good about that. Thank you. I do too. Especially when I I listened to it and went, oh no. Um, so (laughs) yeah. The thought of you re-listening to our podcast and panicking over that detail is going to bring me joy for (laughs) weeks and months to come. (laughs) I'm, I'm grateful you are brought joy I had a because you had to wait. You had to wait, you had wait a month. You had to wait a full month. I didn't know how to address to, it to fix this correction. Yeah, I did. It was horrible. I felt That's sick. Pretty special. I feel better now. Thanks, guys. As long as as long as it's off your chest now, that's all that matters. I agree. What a therapeutic day it's been. I'm telling you what, man. <laughs> so I'd like to start where we left off. Yes. Where did we leave off? Catherine is now officially the Empress of Russia. Ah, look at her go. Her stupid husband is dead. Woohoo. It was one of those things where, you know, she basically did what Henry II did with Thomas Beckett. I didn't, I didn't want him killed. I just said I didn't want him around anymore. It's that. We love the drama of that. Oh, God, I love it. So Catherine basically was like, oh God, it would be so great if he just like died and then he died. And she's like, but I didn't say to kill him. Um, So that's Mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. Peter's dead. And she immediately goes about like rewarding all of her very faithful servants. My favorite example is her longtime valet, Vasily 
Gruen. Sure. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> while she was having an affair, her very long affair with Gregory Orlov, and mind you, he was like one of those really important, he and his brother, Alexis, who is, Alexis is in turn accused of killing Catherine's husband. Um, she had a child with him. Um, and her valet to distract everyone because he knew that Peter, this is when Peter was still alive. And um, mm-hmm. he knew that Peter loved fires. He lit his house on fire when Catherine went into labor. Hold up. He was a pyro. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's on record that he just loved fire. Yeah. Like, I just want to take a moment on that. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So he, he loved, he was a, yes, he was a pyro. And okay, great. the court as a whole had to love it too, but he, many of them did. Oh. And um, so Vasily <laughs> burned his house down once, Cat- he lit his house on fire when Catherine's labor pains got like super intense, like when she was like. I'm sure that helped. And it did because the entire court immediately ran to go watch his house burn in a different part of town while Catherine gave birth to her son, her illegitimate son. Um, by Gregory Orloff, whose name is Alexis Bobrinsky. And wait, that that was a good thing. Yes, because no one knew Catherine had an illegitimate son. They didn't know that she was pregnant. No. Mm. Also, no one paid much attention to her at that point. Right. She was except the people who <laughs> sequestered were in her loneliness. Got it. Got it. Exactly. Gotta. And then Vasily took Alexis, the child, and basically raised him. He and his wife raised him as his own. Wow. So like she rewards them. I mean, unbelievably generously. Mm. And some of the friends who had been forced to go away because remember how Empress Elizabeth was like, no, you're really close to this person. No, Um, they must be banished. She brings a lot of them back, rewards them. And um, when you say reward, like monetarily or like, so it's funny. I'm going to get into that. Uh, yeah. Monetarily with houses. I mean, she's rewarding people with hundreds of thousands of rubles. I mean, it's, it's an absurd sum of money. She also gives them serfs. Now I need to address, and we need to address serfdom Mm -hmm. in Russia in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. By the, when she was crowned in 1760, yeah, 1762, Mm -hmm. the physical crown of Russia, if you will, itself held 500,000 serfs. Russia was a country of about 20 million people. 10 million of those were serfs. Wow. And when we say serfdom, it is synonymous with slavery. Right. It is unbelievably brutal, inhumane. I mean, I have (sighs) example after example. Um, For example, a male serf could be purchased for 200 to 500 rubles a girl or a woman surf as long as she had you know certain skills could be purchased for 50 to 200 rubles and they were as a whole even the most skilled male surf was worth a lot less than a prized hunting dog you see examples in newspapers of you know they're selling this horse this horse a plot of land oh and do you want this whole family um oh my god no, it's it's disgusting. And it's interesting because this becomes a major conflict for Catherine in her life because she believes with her soul in the philosophes, in the enlightenment. She 
wants to bring Russia into the modern era. She wants to be an enlightened ruler. And of course, what is she now known as? An enlightened despot. But this conflict that she has about her enlightenment ideals and the reality of the country that she's ruling is a theme that we see um, throughout the rest of her rule. So when she's rewarding her close friends, she's giving them serfs. She's giving them people. And mm. the family structure in a, in a serf family was, was pretty horrendous as well. I mean, it was, it was a entirely patriarchal setup. The man, the head of the family had absolute power over anyone else, including really disgustingly rights to sleep with his son's wives for pleasure. Um, that was well-documented as something that happened a lot. So we're going to touch on this actually throughout. This is something that I think my favorite biography on Catherine the Great is by Robert K. Massey. He's an unbelievable historian. If you're into Russian history at all, any book this man has written is gold. Um, And what I love is that he never shies away from the complicated facets of the people he studies. And that's how I like to view history as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that we see Catherine... And you see this theme throughout her life. She begins somewhat idealistically and she has these unbelievable, I mean, unbelievable correspondences with the greatest intellectual minds of the, of the age. I mean, truly she's friends with them and mm-hmm. throughout her reign as, as it goes on in time, and I think she reigns like 34 years, she becomes more and more conservative and the realities of the country that she's ruling versus the actual ideals that she holds dear become a lot more stark. So we're going to touch more on serfs. I wanted to bring it up because it's, it is truly, it was the backbone on which that country had been run. And it wasn't always that case. Peter the Great, just like 40 years before he was, he's credited with bringing Westernization and industrialization to Russia to encourage industrialization. He offered, peasants that were held by the state to non-noble entrepreneurs, those serfs were taken from the land. They were converted into industrial serfs. That's the language that was used. And they became property of the enterprise and were sold like a piece of machinery. So let's say they sold a piece of the factory, a serf would go with it. Um, Yeah. They lived in the most foul um, living conditions. They had unrestricted working hours. Managers were, of course, encouraged mm-hmm. to use corporal punishment. And so few of them reached middle age. I mean, absolutely so few. So by the time Catherine comes to the throne, the unrest amongst these serfs is high. And they're beginning to escape in higher and higher numbers, especially because mm-hmm. one of the very first thing Catherine tries to do is she issues a decree saying that owners can't purchase serfs for labor apart from purchasing the land to which the serfs were bound and that they had to then they worked for agreed upon wages whereas before it was slavery and the problem is the moment serfs hear that they could get wages they're like oh fuck it we're done we give up and not give up we put our tools down and we demand i don't know a living condition and catherine was forced to respond because the entire economy and the backbone of this country was based on surf labor. She had to send troops, but she asked that the general in charge of the troops, his main job was to actually investigate the conditions that the serfs were living in and to try to understand their grievances because 
she didn't know how to fix it right then, but she didn't want to not have a solution. And she wanted to know what happened. And so Mm -hmm. unfortunately in the end, she was just completely torn and she was intellectually, I mean, entirely opposed to serfdom, but the realities of her country were, you know, she, she couldn't necessarily get rid of it. And in the end, what ends up happening specifically is there's a, a huge revolt. It's a very famous revolt. It's the biggest threat to her reign. It's called the Pugachev revolt. There's a pretender to the throne who comes and um, he pretends to be Catherine's dead husband, even though he looks nothing like him. Everyone's just like, yeah, it's him. Um, and it, it goes on for like an extended period of like years, like five or six years, this revolt is happening off and on. He dies almost, he doesn't, he comes back. She finally executes him. But in the end, the people who come to her aid once more are the nobles. And so she won't do anything to threaten that base. Right. And I'm sure it was for her because she was very internally conflicted. But in the end, of course, who ended up suffering? The serfs. Mm. I mean, the nice thing is they were finally granted emancipation, but that was in 1861 under her great-grandson, Alexander III. Though it was two years before the United States uh, was forced to do that. So, you know. Yeah, that's messed up. I mean, it's hard to hear. It is hard to hear. And it's, it's, it's really hard to digest because I try to understand, you know, we try to understand them as people and we can see her conflict. The problem was she also firmly believed in her right to be an autocrat. And so in the end, the decision came down to her and she didn't make it. If, I mean, if it feels like she wouldn't have been able to do anything if she lost her position of power. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes people want to be able to affect change in smaller ways continually exactly. by maintaining their platform. Exactly, Chloe. So it's, it's you know, yeah. is that, is it better for her to have remained as a reforming leader versus having some, you know, really intense conservative come and do absolutely nothing? I think as a whole, if we can look back and judge history, which I think is actually a pointless exercise, but if we want to, then yeah, I think as a whole, it was better. She did reform Russia. I mean, I'm going to go into my favorite part of, and what she viewed as her greatest legacy as a ruler, but as a reforming source, she has seen, she, she, Russia became a European power, not this weird country to the East that basically lives in snow the whole time. You know, she became this widely respected ruler and it's, you know, I think it's important that, you know, we acknowledge every aspect of her reign, though. So she inherits an issue with serfdom. She inherits a huge economic crisis. She inherits wars that Peter decided to start for some reason with their allies. She inherits church issues. Um, She is actively against church involvement in the state. The problem was the church had been through a lot recently because Peter had, or Peter the Great, excuse me, had effectively made the church secularize everything. And then Peter, her husband, Peter III, had decided that all of the church's estates would go to the crown. And she was absolutely appalled by the amount of wealth that the church had. I mean, she like, she actively hated it. And her her outward piety was very much a show, but she understood how important it was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a sign of her religiosity, but of her political acumen. She's trying to find the balance, right? And she she firmly believed that the wealth that the church has should be used for the state. It should be used for means of education and welfare and 
I don't know, good things that they say that they believe in. Um, <laughs> sorry, is that a personal thought that I put in there? Maybe. <laughs> Never. So, so when she inherits this, thr- you know, she comes to the throne with baggage. She has a son who doesn't love her because he's been raised away from her. Right. She has the legacy that maybe she killed her husband to gain the throne. A lot of people thought that she should have maybe had the throne and be holding it in, as a regent for her son, for him to come of age. She never once entertained that. Did nobody try to kill her for being a traitor then? No. Because Peter the Great had established a precedent that he had eliminated primogeniture, which is the idea that the eldest son inherits everything. Mm-hmm. And he instead gave the Russian ruler power to elect their own heir. So basically what I love is her work ethic from the beginning of her reign through the end of her life. Literally she gets up at five or six every morning. She works 15 plus hours a day. What? She has one hour in between. um, I wrote in quotes for recreation before bed. You know, she loved, you know, opulence and elegance, but it wasn't like it was her favorite thing in the world. She ate pretty normal food to the point where like she would have banquets with people and they would know to go back to other nobles apartments after to like actually supplement their meals, which I think is kind of funny. (laughs) Just not how I would live. No, never. Especially if I had the, um, the limitless wealth that she did. Um, Yeah. I mean, it'd be pastries all day. You are French. It's true. (laughs) I think is your blood just made of creme patissier? Let's hope. I want it to fun. be for your sake. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. Pastries mm. directly into my veins. I'm here for it. I can't imagine anything going wrong in that scenario. Nothing. It'd be a healthy experience. I'll edit that joke out later. Nah. Um, okay. So in, in <laughs> 1764, so two years after she's a, she's Empress, Ivan VI, who was in prison since he was a very small child, um, he was the guy in the prison that everyone's like, should we rally around him? And then she's like, you know, and she had issued reissued a rule that should anyone try to free him, he would be killed immediately so that they couldn't abscond with him. And then people couldn't rally around him. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened. And she faced literally no fallout for it, which I love. Um, In 1763, she struck up a correspondence with perhaps one of the most important figures in her life. Um, you may know him. His name's Voltaire. Um, sure, sure, sure. She wrote to him, and I love this quote. She said, whatever style I possess, whatever powers of reasoning have all been acquired through the reading of Voltaire. She said that before she started corresponding with him? a letter to him to open the quote. Oh, she wrote that to him. Yeah. And after his death, she purchases his entire library, and it's it, it makes up the Hermitage Museum, which I'm going to go into her cultural significance in Russia. She built the Hermitage, basically. One of the greatest art and literature and culture museums in the world with one of the largest collections was entirely begun by her. Um, Her other really, another really important correspondence and friendship she had was with Diderot, who of course wrote the Encyclopédie. Um, There's a famous example of their friendship that I love. So he spent his entire wealth to publish and work on this, the great encyclopedia and needed a dowry for his one child who lived. Um, And she offered more money than he asked and purchased his entire library because that's what he was selling to try and give his daughter money enough to wed, which at the time was a legal thing. And she said, 
um, basically a scholar should never be separated from his books. You will keep them until your death. So once he dies, she would then inherit the library, but she gave him more money than he wanted for the dowry and then said, keep your books, give them to me. Yeah, I'll, I'll get them after you die. And then effectively he becomes her librarian, which is really cool. She gives him this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Insane salary. She gives him like a thousand rubles a year. And then one year she like is absolutely mortified. She forgets to give him money, his salary. Of course he's like, it's fine. She gives him 50,000 rubles and says for the next 50 years, should I forget? And he goes to Russia. He actually sees her in like 1773. He stays for almost a whole year. Um, And he, he, they become, uh, you know, very important friends. He tries and gives her to give her all these, this advice. And, and, you know, he meets with her like 60 times or something. And, and basically throughout the year of him being there, she begins to see the impracticality of his ideas. And I have a quote that I like as well. She goes, a noble idealistic philosoph was not a practical politician or administrator. And this is again, the crux of her rule, I think is her idealism meeting with the reality of who she was what I love is that we have these letters and when she's writing these letters, she's aware of the audience. Um, so I think that's important as well that we, we know that bias, but around 1766, she starts writing to Voltaire about something called a nakaz or an instruction. And this is said to be her greatest legacy as a ruler. Um, it's a complete revision of the, and these are my words. I'm very pleased with this chaotically obsolete legal code of Russia um, (laughs) that had been devised by Peter the Great's dad in 1649. She writes, it has the Nakaz has 526 articles that are grouped into 20 chapters. And she presents her view of the nature of the Russian state, how it should be governed. Um, She actively drew from Jean Locke, Montesquieu, Cesare Beccaria, Um, and said, the laws ought to be so framed as to secure the safety of every citizen as much as possible. Political liberty does not consist in the notion that a man may do whatever he pleases. Liberty is the right to do whatsoever the laws allow. The equality of the citizens consists in that they should all be subject to the same laws. Again, in her establishing of this legal code, for lack of a better term, Mm -hmm. she's trying to make her idealism fit with the reality of the serfdom and the idea that there is legal slavery in her country. Importantly, she talks about 
the nature of a sovereign's rule. A sovereign, she says, is not divine. And they may say to be ruling by divine right, but they themselves are not divine. And thus it's not sacrilege or treason to commit a non-physical offense. And words cannot be called criminal unless they're accompanied by deeds. <gasps> Free speech? Interesting. What? She said torture was absolutely inhumane. She wanted pun punishments tailored to fit the crimes and a due process should govern legal and courtroom procedures. The most unsuccessful part of it was shockingly the bit about serfdom. And she says, she's very confused when you read it. It's actually interesting because she, she literally is so confused about it. She says a civil society requires a certain established order. There ought to be some to govern and some to obey. Diderot ends up complaining of their conditions to her. And her reply is, why should they bother to be clean when their souls are not their own? Ooh. And I don't think she meant it as like a, who cares about no, that? No, but that's, like, I mean, that's, that's dark. It's really dark. And you can, I feel like, and maybe again, this is me putting it upon her. You can feel the conflict. She says to Frederick, I must warn your majesty that you will find different places in the document, which will perhaps seem strange. I beg that you remember that I have often accom accommodated myself to the present without closing the path to a more favorable future. And that's it. That's the explanation of it all to me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, she was absolutely limited by the circumstances of the country she was in and what she deemed possible. Now, of course, she had it absolutely in her power to change circumstances, but in her mind, it was an unbelievably impossible task. What's really cool is she actually, she gathers to debate and to go over this, the Nakaz, she gathers nobles, town people, townspeople, Cossacks, and peasant delegates in equal numbers to vote on it. And this is my favorite thing. She's been on the throne for like five years. And the first thing they set out to do is not to vote on the Nakaz and discuss it, mm -hmm. which they end up doing for like an extended period of time, but to elect to call her the great. And this is the first sense that we get of even in her lifetime, the importance of her rule and how people even in her own country viewed her rule. The only person right. who'd ever been, you know, elected the great was Peter the Great. And he was given that title as, as an, by an elected body after 40 years of rule. She's given it after five. I think a really important other thing to talk about are the lovers. She was with Orlov for 13 years. That was her longest. Um, he had a lot of affairs and Penning, who was, I'm not saying that right. It's fine. Who was Paul, her son's tutor, and who was a governmental advisor. They found this lovely boy, Vasilchikov, whatever. He was like 28 years old. Um, he was really pretty, but boring. Those were my notes. Um, and then I said, enter Gregory Potemkin. Um, from 1774 to 1791, he was the most important and powerful man in Russia. And it was the most intense of her relationships. Um, they might've even gotten married. It's, it's, it's hard to gauge. The intensity of this relationship, however, was such that the physical side of it fizzled out within a few years, but they remained absolutely devoted to each other until the end of his life. Um, Is it like a Vegas thing? <laughs> what did Ma Massey says in his, what I love is he says, um, 
the only explanation for how the nature of their relationship could have changed so much throughout the years, but still retain devotion is marriage. Right. So he ends up finding someone to start sleeping with her. Um, his name is Zabdowski. They wanted to keep that core of their, she and Potemkin wanted to keep the core of that relationship. And then like basically resolve specific issues is what I wrote down. And then he left in like 1777 after a year. And then basically there were so many of them. I stopped listing. And during her life, she had 12 lovers in total. There were three before she was an empress and nine during her 34 year reign. It was a big scandal. And this is why we get the whole, she slept with the horse thing. It's like, no, she slept with really young men, Mm -hmm. but it became important. And it was, it was entirely accepted that she had favorites. This was not even something that she had um, created for herself. It was, it was something that was established by um, Empress Elizabeth before her and a few other women. So, and it was widely established from male rulers to have it. So it was an accepted position at court. They lived in an apartment with a staircase that connected to hers. And, you know, she walked with them on her arm after dinner. It was that kind of thing. Iconic. And the only scandal was that they were so young. She -hmm. basically had like a system for like, when she grew bored of them, she would give them a ridiculous amount of money, make them a count and then like give them a palace and it worked. That's not a bad deal. Honestly, I'm down for it. It I do want to talk about, I really, sorry. I got really excited. (laughs) I saw in my notes the word plague, and this is very applicable to the world in which we live. (laughs) In March of 1770, there were a lot of, there was a plague that hit Moscow pretty horribly. And people hated being in in forced quarantine. Oh no. (laughs) And, and they started rioting and being stupid. (laughs) And, and then the quarantine remained in effect at the edges of the empire because people were irresponsible for two years. No. And up to 220,000 people died. Don't say that. But if they had listened to her and the scientists <laughs> who advised her, no. it would be different. Wow. It's really true that A, history repeats itself, and B, we learn Nothing. Nothing. I've been screaming about the fact that the world was due for a plague for like a decade now. Yeah, I mean, it felt right. There was that whole 20, what, 2012 situation. We were all like, well, it's time. (laughs) Very true. That's frustrating. I don't like hearing that it lasted two years. It only lasted two years because people were stupid. And that was the plague. And they had no, no, you know, they couldn't even tweet about it. Imagine doing this whole thing without Zoom. I like to think that we would not have been the ones uh, partying and congregating in the plague. I know we I wouldn't have been. So wow. that was a okay. fun anecdote. What a fun That's anecdote. A fun That's a fun fact. Know, Thanks for right? bringing that along. Oh my God, anytime. I do. So I'm going to move back to like my trajectory yeah. of the story, but I literally was like example of plague. And I went, there's a plague. There was a plague. Worth um, it. Loved it. Here for oh, it. I also want to say she has this quote and I think this is, kind of the crux of her as a human she just she says i cannot live one day without love and i think you know the story of the young girl from germany coming with a mother who only sought political advancement to the husband who immediately said by the way i'm in love with someone else let me humiliate you for like 15 years 
Um, you know, and all the men that she would end up loving who ended up having affairs or leaving her, that is what she was looking for. And with, with love, it's not just physical for her. It's absolutely intellectual. I mean, she's such a creature of, you know, her, her brain is so unbelievably powerful and she absolutely needed that kind of stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um, one person who hated all those favorites was her son, Paul, who had been distanced from birth, as we remember. And as he grew up, he became more and more obsessed with his father, which really is just a terrible choice. Um, he sought to emulate him. No. Which is so stupid. Uh, he basically like was a, a ridiculous human and became more and more eccentric with age and ends up becoming assassinated when he is ruler. But that's years down the line. Yikes. Uh, in an effort to mature him in 1773, they conjured a young German princess named Wilhelmina, converted her to orthodoxy. She changed her name to Natalia. And then they got married. And I said, the marriage was a disappointment. She loved someone else. That's not fair. And didn't get pregnant for two years. And then she died horribly in childbirth. Five days of labor. Like five days of agony. No. Dies. And then... To get her son over this marriage, she finds the, she has someone break into Natalia's, you know, like chest and find the letters between her and her lover, who also happened to be Paul's best friend. Um, And he's like, fuck her, I'm done. And then five months later, which is not kosher, like you need to wait at least a year. um, They find Sophia of Wurttemberg and she becomes Maria Fyodorovna. One day I'll pronounce these right. They got married five months that later. Immediately, she gave birth to a son, Alexander. 18 months after that, a second son, uh, Constantine. They were very happy in this marriage, even though she was, like, absolutely beautiful. And Paul was, like, a weirdly, slightly... He had a bizarre face. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, Okay. I think he 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 was a very sickly child and led to interesting malformations um and they had nine kids together hey and they were very happy they genuinely made each other happy and it's like one of the rare examples of a royal marriage that was like mutual all right well i guess i'm happy for them (laughs) Catherine and paul however continued to have a very tumultuous relationship they had moments of reconciliation and then Mm -hmm. absolutely not as a whole it was bad she very seriously considered disinheriting him for his his son, Alexander, who was her beloved grandson. And she literally kept hesitating, going back and forth right up until her death. There's even a tale that, like, Paul got someone to burn the will that she made at the last moment because it disinherited him. And that's why he became king. Um, either way, she basically did to Alexander, her grandson, exactly what Elizabeth did to Paul so she kind of she didn't take him away from her family and her mother his mother at birth but she saw him every day and doted on him and actively sought to make herself the most important figure in his life and he becomes a very interesting political figure and he kind of had to straddle both worlds he had to you know talk about how annoying his father was to his grandmother and how overbearing his grandmother was to his father he and he ends up being known as like a very indecisive person who took a lot of time to think about things. And I genuinely think that's why. Nature versus nurture. Yeah, exactly. 
one of her last great like accomplishments was she makes this journey down the Dnieper River, Dnieper, no idea, to the newly annexed Crimea. What a conflict. And so she makes this very famous journey down the river with Joseph, who's the emperor of Austria, who becomes a good friend of hers. Um, and it's this triumph. The second Turkish war ends up happening. There's another war with Sweden. Everyone gets really tired. Patenkin dies in 1791. She's absolutely devastated. I guess when you reach a certain age and your friends start dying, you start to reflect, is what I've been told. The French Revolution happens, and she had corresponded greatly with Marie Antoinette and King Louis and all of the philosophs. And it, the, their executions, I mean, genuinely threw her. She was beside herself and became much more conservative and even started censoring things slightly. Um, she began to censor books that were likely to corrupt morals. Oh, okay. so it's it's. I wouldn't say it's an entirely horrendous and obtrusive censorship campaign, but by the end of her reign, that you couldn't self-publish books anymore. Even though she introduced that idea, you had to have it pass a censorship office. And I think it was just by that point she had ruled for thirty something years, you know, and the idea that some country could rebel to execute its own leaders was she couldn't understand it. Um, right. The Hermitage collection had been begun by her right after her marriage um, and continued and is to this day, one of the greatest cultural legacies anyone's ever left a single person has left behind. And that's her. She gets up to go to work one day, November 5th, 1796 she has her morning coffee. She goes to write her letters. And when they go to knock on the door to um, give her her breakfast, she doesn't answer. And she was lying on the floor. She had a stroke. And by the next evening, uh, November 6th, she had passed away. And I like to think she passed away doing exactly what she saw as her duty, which was ruling Russia. Right. And the first thing Paul did was to restore primogeniture as the basis of succession. And Russia would never again be ruled by a woman. Because he's the eldest son. Yes. And also, <sighs> God forbid a woman rule. Right. No, that'd be terrible. And she never again would. I want to end with the epitaph that Catherine wrote for herself. Lovely. Here lies Catherine II, born in Stettin on April 21st, 1729. In the year 1744, she went to Russia to marry Peter III. At the age of 14, she made the threefold resolution to please her husband, Elizabeth, and the nation. She neglected nothing in trying to achieve this. 18 years of boredom and loneliness gave her the opportunity to read many books. When she came to the throne of Russia, she wished to do what was good for her country and tried to bring happiness, liberty, and prosperity to her subjects. She forgave easily and hated no one. She was good-natured, easygoing, tolerant, understanding, and of a happy disposition. She had a Republican, lowercase r, spirit, and a kind heart. She was sociable by nature. She made many friends. She took pleasure in her work. She loved the arts. And what I love is in a letter to Grimm, he had addressed it to Catherine the Great. And she said, I beg you no longer to call me Catherine the Great because my name is Catherine the Second. And that 
is one of the greatest, most complicated and fascinating rulers in history, Catherine the Great, or as she preferred to be known, Catherine the Second. Ah, you know, I love it when we get to hear from them. I, it's the fact that she wrote so many letters and they were kept and we actively get to read them is, is I think one of the reasons I've loved her for so long is because we, mm-hmm. we actively hear her voice. I know who she is more than I know Eleanor of Aquitaine or right. Isabella of France or even, I mean, Elizabeth the first, we have a lot of her stuff as well, which is great. But, you know, as a whole, we don't get that for a lot of women. And she understood the importance of her own voice. And I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that makes me happy. That's a, that's such a lovely place to end. Thank you. If you have any questions for us, please let us know. Always. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. Have a lovely month. Yes. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.